0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I thought they didn't teach critical race theory school. they went to like law school or something. That's right. I sure hope not because I'm not certain seven-year-olds need to learn it. I would like black kids to be completely empowered, to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow this is the conversation that has gone in the wrong direction.
0: And she got a lot of backlash from that and I do not know why. That is the former secretary of state, the first female black secretary of state, uh, one of the smartest people in the country, uh, also the most practical. And I thought that she grew up in the South and she's talking about somewhere, someone who said couldn't go to a movie theater until she was a certain age. Uh, buses, she grew up in the segregated South. No one gave her an easy life. She just happened to be unbelievably successful. Uh, John McCorder uh, is with us right now. He's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University and author of a book you got to get. It's called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. John, great to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: So what prompted you? I know you've been talking about this. What made you feel as though you should write a book about this?
1: Well, it's just gotten to the point since about June 2020 with the racial reckoning that we've been having since the murder, and I do think it was a murder of George Floyd, where a certain kind of person is saying that what the racial reckoning means is that we're going to teach white Americans that their natural state should be one of guilt about racism past and present. And we're going to teach black people that our role is to cheerlead as white people settle into this and to think of ourselves as eternally victims of white racism, with that being the most interesting thing about us. And that if you don't agree with that agenda, it's not that you don't agree, but that you're some kind of moral pervert who wants to deny that racism or slavery ever happened. And I think that's wrong. I think that what happens is that the people who say this are clearly wrong to most of us, but They scare you because if you don't agree with them, they call you a racist on social media. And so I'm seeing a great many very educated, kind, well-intentioned people standing around pretending to agree with this kind of misguided zealotry, and it's becoming just what smart people in America are supposed to do. I won't have it, and I figure if it takes a black person to to say it and have somebody halfway listen, then I'm going to write a book as a duty to make it clear that there are different ways of addressing racism in this country than this kind of kabuki play-acting with people with pitchforks basically hurting people, running around making people cry in the name of this prosecutorial ideology, which, this is a crucial thing, isn't necessary to black success. There are other ways of making it so black America can succeed. This new fashion is not it.
0: How do you feel about what Condoleezza Rice said on The View a couple weeks ago?
1: She's dead right, and the problem with people's reception of it is that there is a movement in the educational establishment for children of taking ideas derived from critical race theory, such as you know white people on top, black people on the bottom, watch out, guilt, et cetera. That sort of thing is being taught in public schools and an awful lot of private schools. It's very much in the news. A lot of people turn their head away from this and think that someone like me is just talking about some little tempest in a teapot. Now, it's true that legal theory from 1981, the original critical race theory papers are not being taught in schools, but that's not what we mean anymore. We mean the basic underpinnings of the ideology. And Condoleezza Rice is not crazy to refer to that. I'm not crazy to gather the news stories and the countless anecdotes I have from schools in practically every state of this country saying that that sort of thing is influencing the way things are being taught. But the thing is, if you call that out, many people think it means you're not battling racism, so you're supposed to pretend that it isn't happening. But it is, and I don't want my children affected by it, and I don't want this country's intellectual culture to be based on that one thing. Not that that one thing isn't true. That, you know There was slavery. There was racism, and there's still some now. But for that to be the main thing that an education is about instead of teaching people to think, I say no. I, as a black person, do not need that transformation on the behalf of black people who need help, and neither do they.
0: So a lot of people listen and say, well, what's the downside of maybe tilting the playing field more towards uh, blacks as opposed to the whites had it too good for too long anyway? If we overcorrected, we overcorrected. So what?
1: Well, the thing is, we were already doing that. I wouldn't say that we were overcorrecting it, but the idea that America has stood by over the past 50 years and pretended that the past hadn't happened is utter and complete fiction there's a way of talking about this that literally sounds as if the person is writing from the vantage point of 1960 instead of 2021 there's been plenty of acknowledgement there's been plenty of affirmative action there have been plenty of scholarships there have been plenty of black people in very high places there's been plenty of black people completely penetrating the entire american media all of these are wonderful things but they are acknowledgement and so the playing field has been tilted just affirmative action I get the feeling people under about 40 aren't sure what an exotic thing that was when it happened in the 60s. That isn't something that had really happened anywhere else on earth. So when it's done right, it's a very wise policy. That's tilting the playing field. Now, how much do you want to tilt it? Do you want to tilt it so much that a white man has a hard time getting any kind of plumb position because the idea that everything has to be given to black people regardless of qualifications or with qualifications placed way in the background? Once again, that's a case. I'd like to hear it laid out, but the people who are in favor of this don't lay it out. They just say words like equity and intersectionality and racial reckoning and figure that they've made the case, and everybody's afraid of them because if you say that they're not right, you get called a racist on Twitter. That won't do. I think that the way we were handling these things from roughly the late 60s until about last night made sense. It's this new thing that is extremist and unnecessary and cruel. Which I think somebody needs to stand up and say something about. Not that I'm the only one, but I want to be one of the people who is standing and saying this. This doesn't work. This isn't wisdom.
0: Uh, talking to Professor McCorder, who wrote uh, "Woke Racism: How Religion Has Betrayed," but uh, how a new religion has betrayed a black Black America. Overall, uh, Professor, as you look at what's happening in this country, people look back in the '60s and said, "Well-intended." But while helping out with these social programs, you help destroy the black family unintentionally. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, it's true to an extent. And I hate to say it because there are people who say it who I'm not allied with. I am not a hard, right person. I've never come from that particular direction. I don't believe that race is something we need to completely get over. I'm not from that. Nevertheless, Welfare was expanded in the late 60s. And that was another way that the playing field was tilted. The idea was to help poor black women by teaching black women to sign up for welfare benefits when ordinarily they wouldn't have. And that did two things. It did mean that fewer black people lived in abject poverty. That's true. Instead, the people who lived in abject poverty were just poor. But then on the other hand, it did mean that fatherlessness, not growing up with your dad, became instead of one way that you might grow up poor and black, which it always had been, became a norm in a great many black communities. That norm that you know it was hard to even imagine having not existed by the eighties is something that began in the late 60s. And so, yes, you need to have welfare, but it was overdone, and it did destroy a lot of Black communities. And the thing is, you can hear that said by plenty of people who lived in those communities and who live in them now, including pastors and ministers. This is not just some think tank talking point. It's just not something that people want to talk about in the intelligentsia. But the intelligentsia is just one sliver of society, and very few of them are the ones suffering from the effects of racism the way other people are.
0: James, I hear you. A couple of things. So I, I did this book, The President of the Freedom Fighter. So I spent the last maybe two years studying everything Frederick Douglass wrote and did, his own board by beginning with his own autobiography, which he kept improving. And I'll tell you, just studying it, I have to walk away from it because it enrages me. And I had no ancestors here at the time. Obviously, we weren't we all weren't alive at the time. And I could see how seeing that as a young black person being enraged that someone would think races are unequal or people are unequal because of the color of their skin. And to see how slow the progress was, even though we made progress through Reconstruction up until the 1960s, you see us getting better. But I understand how you could look back at that and say, wow, it was just two generations where my grandparents or great-grandparents had to deal with this type of blatant uh, segregation and racism. Mm-hmm. So how do you mm-hmm. process people who say, you know, I keep reading about Frederick Douglass and uh, Booker T Washington and the slave culture and there was 4 million in America. Uh man, this this country uh this is not right and uh, I'm angry about all that. What do you do with that anger?
1: Yeah, your anger should be placed in things that are affecting you and other people right here in the present with the idea being that what you do about the anger is that you change things in a way that creates real change. If anger is about shaking your fist at white racism and especially aiming it at the past as if the past can see you or hear you. All of that is great, but it's theater. We're encouraged to think that being on the side of Black people involves a certain kind of performance. And what people really need to think about is to walk around today, especially if you're a middle-class or affluent Black person, and those two types of Black people are by no means rare today. It's common to be a middle-class Black person. In fact, you could argue it's the norm. If you're a middle-class Black person, you walk around saying that because of, say, microaggression you are living in a racist country that shapes your entire psychology and you've got your fist stuck up in the air you're you're dishonoring your ancestors you're dishonoring probably your grandparents who went through the real thing and what's interesting and nobody ever quite has an answer to this as often as not your grandparents didn't walk around with the attitude that you did the idea was to make the best of things to be constructive you know that there's injustice and sometimes it's even you who's suffering it especially if it's 1955 and You try to make the best of it, and you make concrete solutions. It's today that you walk around angry and often police people's language and cheer when people get fired for saying something like reverse discrimination or something like that. Something's gone wrong, and it's because people in 1955 searched for real solutions to real problems, and they eventually found them, and that's how the 60s happened. Today we're trying to continue the struggle, but the problems are more abstract, and yet we're encouraged to be just as angry as the people were back before and to call what we're dealing with racism as if 1955 is still here when what we're really dealing with is legacies and complexities and subtleties. I don't see it happening, and I want to get us back to it.
0: So you know what? Also, it came to my when, – when they had that whole uh, famous people paying to get into great colleges, pretending to be rowers and soccer players and sailors, mm-hmm. uh, that I, I just – I heard some comments – from black students saying, you know, now you know how we feel. Because a lot of them have these great grades. They get into these great schools, and people just assume the only reason they're there there is to fill a quota. Because Mm -hmm. we tried to bend it to make sure there was opportunity where there wasn't one in the past. And he said, well, now people look at these celebrities walking around campus with these famous faces. Now you know how we feel. Now you know for sure that they've been bending the process in order to get into these great schools they don't deserve. That's how people were viewing us. So sometimes Mm -hmm. you try to help. But you Mm -hmm. hurt.
1: Yeah, that's awkward because often the black student who says this is almost daring, say, the 10-year-old who sees the emperor doesn't have any clothes to say something, which is if that's how you feel about racial preferences, then wouldn't one solution be not to have them? We've listened to that for decades, black students saying, I don't like it that people think I got in here because of affirmative action. But then that same person Will be on the barricades two weeks later, furious that anybody at the school questioned affirmative action. Well, you know, there's a little sliver in there where you think, well, maybe some black students got in by affirmative action and some didn't, but no. If that's how black people have felt, then the solution is to get rid of legacy preferences, get rid of athletic preferences, and also get rid of racial preferences and, and replace them with socioeconomic preferences, which nobody would be ashamed of and would take in a lot of black people, too. But you're not allowed to talk about that because all of this is based on doing a kind of dance rather than thinking about how real people feel in real life and what you can do about it. Right.
0: And now we're in a situation where I don't have the stats in front of me, but these Asian students have their grades through the roof, so they get into all these schools. And people say, well, there's too many Asian students at our school. Really? So they're not supposed to be smart and work 18 hours a day at their work and go to extra help and, uh, you know, and do all the things uh, that they do on the side to, to have this type of
1: excellence? Yeah, none of that. And of course, the fact that this sounds exactly like the way people were thinking of Jews about 15 minutes ago, well, it's all very complicated. But no, it's not. complicated. It's that the whole situation that we have in terms of how to have a representative number of brown kids in a university needs to be sandblasted and completely revised. A lot of time has passed, but it's one of those things. Once a program like that settles in, and I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm one of these people who hates government, that's not what I mean, but once one of this kind of program settles in, it's almost impossible to get rid of it, because having the program becomes a signal of your moral virtue, and so everybody feels like they have to stand behind it until the world World is absolutely perfect. But when it comes to racial preferences, that made perfect sense from about 1966 to, I'm going to arbitrarily say, about 1990. But since then, we've lived in a different kind of America, and it needs to be adjusted to be about misfortune and disadvantage rather than this color of your skin. It's time for that to stop being seen as a right-wing conservative thing to say, because it's actually a very liberal thing to say.
0: Because you're not. Uh, John mccord is our guest, associate professor of English. He wrote for the book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Portrayed Black America. So in Virginia, when we see what's happening now, when these parents are saying, I don't want my kid coming home saying I'm inherently racist or bad or an oppressor, and they're saying it as far as third or fourth grade, are they on to something?
1: Yes. It's something that's happening all over the country. And I'm not somebody who's looking for an issue. I'm not trying to rally a certain kind of person by my side. It's something that I started seeing mushrooming after the summer of 2020 with this racial reckoning. It's more extreme in some places than others. The most colorful examples you see are in private schools because they have more room to turn the whole curriculum upside down. But it's also happening to an extent in public schools. It's absolutely permeating the philosophy that's given to people in schools of education. And anybody who doesn't know that may be pardoned for not you know, following that sort of thing with their eyes on the news pages, but it's painfully evident. And we're really insulting a lot of parents and saying that any parent who has a kid who comes home talking about that stuff and then complains about it publicly is really some kind of bigot who wishes that in school nothing was taught about slavery and racism as if everybody were back in the time of the little rascals. That's just not true. I know too many Democratic, liberal, even leftist and white parents people my age people a generation younger who tell me i can't believe this stuff that my kids are picking up in school and these are not peculiar people and a lot of them send their kids to public schools this is real and anybody who says that it isn't frankly has a certain agenda and that agenda is often that you have to talk about racism above um, and beyond anything else sometimes though that's not what's going on because in a way subverting an education to teaching this kind of ideology is racist, too, and making black people into objects and teaching black people to think of themselves as less powerful than we are. So these are discussions that we need to be had, and it cannot be shut down by simply crying racism whenever a certain kind of overeducated person doesn't like the cut of someone's jib. That's not the way to have a society.
0: Nice. I would love the way you said that. So in terms of overall, this is what you also have. You're dealing with race. I get it. But it's not just with race. Everyone's dealing with wokeism. Whether it's Dave Chappelle, who's got to see if he still has a career, we all know he does. We see Bill Maher has left as a a liberal spokesperson for 25 years, now saying he's upset from what he sees, as has to do with the pandemic on down. Joe Rogan, the most powerful podcaster in the country, said this. You can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps going
1: further and further
0: and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands— it will eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. Right. Because it's your privilege to express yourself when other people of color have been silenced throughout history. We just gotta be nice to each other, man. And there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of this weirdness in our culture, and then that becomes their thing. Their thing is calling people out for their privilege, calling people
1: out for their position. You know, it's uh, crazy times. I I think he nailed it, right? I mean, I have nothing to add, and a lot of people would say, well, Joe Rogan makes his living doing this podcast. He's painting in broad strokes. No, everything he said was absolutely true. There's a certain kind of person who with the best of intentions, and they're often very nice people, as I say in the book, with the best of intentions. What they really are seeking is for white men and especially straight white men to shut up. They would be quite happy if a white man decided, I have no right to express my opinion about any of these matters at all, and I will give people of color anything they ask for. That is the goal, and I'm not exaggerating either. And I think all of us know that despite the hideousness of America's past and even grimy things that happen now, that that solution – is something out of some communist playbook, out of some Martian playbook, out of some education school circa 1975 playbook that has nothing to do with how a mature society should operate, whatever the nature of the past was. And even if the people who suffered most were descendants of African slaves, we all know that that doesn't make sense. And my book is about how we need to stand up. And the idea is not to try to chase these people out of the room, they should be in the room giving us their perspectives, but not standing up and yelling. They can't be the ones who call all the shots. We need those people to go back to where they were two years ago, which is they were one of many people at the table making suggestions in edgy fashion, but not running the show by calling us racists on Twitter with everybody then bowing down and pretending to agree. And, poli- and I think that now that we're coming out of the pandemic, we're beginning to realize something has gone wrong, and I hope my book caught the moment.
0: Uh, no, I think you absolutely have, because there's things that you say that nobody else can. And, and the way you go at it and the way you could surround an argument while attacking the issues that are in the news, I'm trying to tackle that on a daily basis. Tell me if you, if you could buy this analogy. I think the American people just want a level playing field, plow the field, let me compete, but don't fix the outcome. Don't give me a two-goal lead or a two-goal deficit. Just let me compete.
1: Yes. Anybody who really likes themselves would be fine with that. And I would add very briefly something else. The playing field might not be absolutely perfectly level. In no place in human history has it ever been. Leveler, sure. But, yeah, don't fix the game. No self-respecting person wants that to be the condition.
0: Unless you're watching WWE, in which in point you act surprised every time the outcome scripted. <laughs> Uh, listen, congratulations on the book. It's going to be great. It's going to be a runaway hit. I look forward to talking to you about it. Uh, and I've listened to you before. I listened with Megan Kelly's podcast. Always interesting <laughs> and insightful. Uh, John McWhorter, go pick up his book, Woke Racism How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black People. John, thank you.
1: Thank you, Brian, so much. All right. Uh, back in a moment.